The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, I've got uh, 6.30, so let's go ahead and start. It's good to see all of you. I'm excited to uh, continue our study in Pilgrim's Progress. So um, you have the handout there, and I continue to do a progressive kind of summary of where we've been, and I'm not going to go through it. It goes up through three pages. I've learned that if you do a lot on the front end, you have less time on the back end. And I definitely want to finish our contemplation of Christian and Hopeful in Doubting Castle and do some, a little bit of work on Christian, on, on um, spiritual depression and talk some things about the way to fight discouragement or despair in the Christian life. So I want to reserve some time uh, for that at the end. So go ahead and skip ahead to page three and we'll uh, continue. The last thing we saw, just by uh, way of brief review, is that Christian and faithful were in Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair was a, a city with... Uh, um, all kinds of wares and, and people there, et cetera. And it represents the world with all of its allurements, you know, where it says in 1 John 2, do not love the world or anything in the world, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, that's the world. And so Vanity Fair is an allegory or representation of the world in the negative sense. Uh, by that we mean the alluring, tempting, enticing, wicked world. Not the world of John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, etc. So, uh, Christian and faithful go through that. They immediately get into trouble. Their clothing is different. Their speech is different. They're not buying anything. They're just trying to move through. And just even simple, benign statements like... uh, faithful saying, you know, they're saying, what will you buy? And they say, we buy the truth. And that got them into all kinds of trouble. Um, And just by simple assertions of Christian uh, truth, they get into difficulty and it just gets worse and worse. There's nothing they can do to put out the fire. Uh, These people are set against them and they hate them just like Cain hated his brother because their deeds were righteous and their and his, uh, his own actions were wicked. And so there's this hostility. And so they get into trouble with the law and they end up um, tortured, beaten, imprisoned, arraigned. Uh, and one of them uh, is zeroed in on faithful, and he becomes the focus, and he is tried and, and quickly convicted by a terrible jury. You know, I forget all their names, but the jury uh, members are clearly wicked, you can tell in the allegory, by their names. And uh, the, the judge is Lord Hategood, so that's not, not, not a good situation at all. So they, they have no, he has no chance. And so he is um, faithful, is uh, condemned to death, and he is executed most horribly. And so we'll pick up tonight our outline. That's where we were last week. Um, God actually orchestrates Christian's release. So Christian does not die. And so, again, the sovereignty of God, they're both equally committed to Christ. They're both equally uh, repugnant to, the, to Vanity Fair, but only one of them dies. Um, But Christian survives, and so this is what the text says. But as for Christian, he had some respite and was remanded back to prison. So there he remained for a space. But he that overrules all things, having the power of their rage in his own hand, so wrought it about that Christian for that time escaped them and went on his way. 
So it's interesting. What do you think it means when it says that he who overrules all things, God, the sovereign God, had their rage in his hand? Yeah, God is in control of everything. So when human beings are out of their minds, filled with rage, irrational you know, actions and all that, God's ruling over all of that. He's peaceful, in control, and so he's, he's able to protect um, his children, even in the midst of irrational uh, rage. And so uh, it says Christian escaped them. I don't perceive that he like escaped like a jailbreak. I think he was set free. Uh, he was not persecuted and was allowed to continue. And so he goes on. Then there's this uh, frequently in Pilgrim's Progress, these kinds of poems. And uh, this is a celebration of faithful's heroic witness. Remember that faithful was uh, lifted up to heaven in a chariot like Elijah and was welcomed immediately into the celestial city uh, as a martyr. So this is a celebration of his witness. Well, faithful, thou hast faithfully professed unto thy Lord with whom thou shalt be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights, Sing, faithful, sing, and let thy name survive, for though they killed thee, thou art yet alive. So it's a very uh, powerful and emotional kind of tribute to faithful as a martyr. All right, so as we go on from there, then the account says this, Now I saw in my dream that Christian went not forth alone, for there was one whose name was Hopeful, being made so by the beholding of Christian and faithful in their words and behavior in their sufferings at the fair, who joined himself unto him and entering into a brotherly covenant, told him that he would be his companion. Thus, one died to bear testimony to the truth and another rises out of his ashes to be a companion with Christian in his pilgrimage. This hopeful also told Christian that there were many more of the men of the fair that would take their time and follow after. In other words, there are more people that were moved and persuaded by Christian and faithful's witness there in Vanity Fair, and they would come later. So this reminds me of Tertullian's famous statement, uh, the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. So what does that mean, and how is it put on display here? Yeah, I mean, think of what it says uh, concerning Stephen. They looked on him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then they saw how he died, so filled with love, not filled with spite or hatred. But basically, like Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen said, please, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. And that's how he died. And that must have had a tremendous impact on Saul of Tarsus, on the Apostle Paul, future apostle. All right, how is that put on display here? The blood of martyrs is seed. Okay, well, yeah, look at what Bunyan said. Out of his ashes rises another one. So that's about the clearest example. So the one is, is burned and up out of uh, his ashes comes hopeful. Now, for the rest of the story, part one, Christian and hopeful are friends. They, they go side by side. They cross the river of death together. So they are there together from this point forward. Interesting how he talks about a covenant. They entered into a covenant to be brothers together. Now, for us as Baptists in this church, we have a church covenant, uh, those things, the promises we make to each other. We talk frequently about covenant fellowship. And so it's just uh, it's a, a commitment that, that we make to be brothers and sisters together and to help each other in the Christian life. All right, the next por uh, portion, uh, as they walk along, they meet an individual named Byens. Now, Byens, uh, it seems, is a mercenary. He is an individual who is worldly, uh, in his pursuit of Christianity. 
And so uh, we're going to, and this is, again, the value, the theological value of Pilgrim's Progress are the people they meet along the way and the discussions they have. That's the hard work of the book. Um, but, you know, it goes down sweeter than other Puritan books, let me tell you. All right. Um, so, I mean, it's an allegory with kind of a fun story and all that. So you're getting doctrine, but, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. So it's kind of interesting. But here we meet this individual buy-ins, and it's not so clear what that means. So I, I, I pondered a little bit. I'm giving you this little meditation on buy-ins. What does he mean by buy-ins? And so I think it effectively means an ulterior motive, uh, basically having a different end than the glory of God and the salvation of your own soul into joyful fellowship uh, with or joyful relationship with God. Something else is your reason why. If you ask this individual and if they told you the truth, which they wouldn't, but if they told you the truth, why do you go to church? Why do you pray? Why do you believe in Jesus? You know, uh, why all these things? Their true reason is something other than what it should be, which is the glory of God and their own salvation. Um, and so that's what I think is going on with buy-ins. Um, and just an aside also, we see this in the prosperity gospel where Jesus becomes a means to an end. And what is that end? What is the, the, the end that the prosperity gospel is going after for its people, so its adherents? What is, what is the end? What is it they want? They want money, right? They want a comfortable, prosperous, healthy life in this world, the way any pagan would define it. That's what they want. How then in the prosperity gospel is Jesus a means to that end? Yeah. I mean, you, you believe in Jesus so that you, be, you, be, you can become rich. It's what they talk about all the time. Jesus becomes effectively a lottery ticket. And so uh, the point is, if that's what you're after, then Jesus isn't really your God. Money is. You're essentially covetous. And so that's what we see with buy-ins here. Uh, so, I'm reading the, the uh, text. So, I saw that quickly after they were gone out of the fair, they, o they overtook one that was going before them whose name was Byans. So, they said to him, What countrymen, sir, and how far go you this way? He told them that he came from the town of Fair Speech, and he was going to the celestial city, but told them not his name. So like in the allegory, if I have to tell you my name, then you'll know who I am. So, uh, but we know who he is, Byans. From fair speech, said Christian, is there any good that lives there? Yes, said Byans, I hope. Pray, sir, what may I call you, said Christian? Byans, I'm a stranger to you and you to me. If you be going this way, I shall be glad of your company. If not, I must be content. This town of fair speech, said Christian, I've heard of, and as I remember, they say it is a wealthy place. Byans, yes, I will assure you that it is, and I have very many rich kindred there. Christian, pray, who are your kindred there, if a man may be so bold? Byans, almost the whole town. And in particular, my Lord Turnabout, my Lord Time Server, my Lord Fair Speech, from whose ancestors that town first took its name, also Mr. Smooth Man, Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Anything, and the parson of our parish, Mr. Two Tongues was my mother's own brother by father's side. And to tell you the truth, I am become a gentleman of good quality, yet my great-grandfather was but a waterman, looking one way and rowing another. And I got most of my estate by the same occupation. It's really amazing. So in other words, he's rowing in the opposite direction from the way he's looking. You can picture that. So he's pulling this way. So he's looking one way and going the other direction. So as you look at this, this is a, quite a collection of relatives in this town. 
Are you a married man, said Christian? Byans, yes, and my wife is a very virtuous woman, the daughter of a virtuous woman. She was my lady Feigning's daughter. Therefore, she came from a very honorable family and is arrived to such a pitch of breeding that she knows how to carry to it to all, even to prince and peasant. So she knows how to fit into any and every situation. She's good at talking and she just fits in very well. All right, so as you look at this list of names, what does it reveal about his, his sense of uh, Bayan's religion? Again, this is an allegory and he chooses these names uh, wisely. What do you get out of these names? What is he saying about the kind of problem we're dealing with in religion here with Bayan's? Yeah, I think James would talk about somebody who's a double-minded individual. What, what does that mean to be double-minded? You know, and, and Jesus, I think, sp speaks about people that would try to serve both God and money. And so they're, they're, they're doing this, but they're also doing that. And so there's this competition between God and money. And so these folks are all worldly. Um, like a Mr. Time Server, he does not genuinely, I mean, you think about an employee that's a time server, what does that mean? Uh, you know, so so what, what's that? Watching the clock. Yeah, gone at five o'clock in 0.1 seconds, all right? So, but what does that say about the person? They really don't wanna be there. They don't believe in what the company is doing. They're there for only one reason, and that's to make money. And so they don't have any desire to be there a second longer uh, than they have to be. Uh, are there people that approach Christianity that way? Well, Bunyan seems to think so, that there are people that are just in it to, to serve time and try to get through, check a box, uh, do all that, but they're not what they appear to be. All right, um, why is it dangerous to our souls to follow Christ for worldly reasons? Yeah, to pursue money. Anyone who desires to be rich pierces himself with many a pang, I think it says. Anyone else? Why is it dangerous to follow Christ for worldly reasons? His kingdom is not of this world. Leads to discouragement, that's very true. And also these things are dangerous to our souls. You know, is the very thing we were just quoting in 1 Timothy. All right. So Bayans now describes his approach to Christianity. It is true that we uh, somewhat differ in religion from those of the stricter sort. Yet, but in two small points. First, we never strive against wind and tide. Secondly, we are always most zealous when religious goes, religion sorry, goes in its silver slippers. We love much to walk with him in the street if the sun shines and the people applaud him. So in other words, we're not going to make any ripples here. If the general flow of the surrounding cultures one direction, we're going to go with it. We're not going to strive against wind and tide. We're not going to like kill ourselves like rowing upstream. And so when religion's popular, that's a good day for us. When everybody loves it and all that, we're in. So he openly says that. That's his approach to, uh, to religion. What's, uh, what's wrong with that? Sounds comfortable, right? What's wrong with that approach to Christianity? We're not going to go against wind and tide, and we're going to especially enjoy religion when he's walking around in his silver slippers when everyone's applauding him. And again, keep in mind why God left us in this world. All right, after we have come to faith in Christ, we, I, I hope you've noticed we were not immediately whisked up to heaven. All right, we're still here. And so why? And the answer that, that we have been giving here in this church is we're here to make progress in two journeys the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of, of evangelism and missions. And in both of those, you must suffer. 
It's not possible to make progress in holiness without being willing to suffer. And, and we're also told plainly that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. People will not enjoy that. They're not enjoy, I'm talking about unconverted people. Will not enjoy being around you. Secondly, you can't make progress in the external journey without suffering. The people who are trying to win to Christ will not put up with a consistent witness. They don't like it. They don't enjoy it. They're going to fight against it, some places militarily. I mean, even with the government and with, with physical attacks and all that. That's the world we live in. And so if that's why we're here, then we have to expect to suffer. You can't make progress in the two journeys without suffering. can't be done. And so he's saying we're not going to fight against wind and tide. Well, I can tell you right now, the wind and tide of your flesh is heading the wrong direction. So you've got to be swimming or rowing upstream every moment as a Christian. You've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. That's what holiness is all about. The easy thing to do is just float downstream toward the flesh. That's the easiest thing to do. Same thing with surrounding culture. And I think, as we've said several times on these Wednesday nights, our surrounding culture here in America is going to become more and more pagan. It's going to become more and more aggressively anti-Christian. And so it's not going to, religion isn't going to walk around in silver slippers and be applauded. So uh, it's, it's just dangerous. All right, so Christian pulls Hopeful aside in the account and tells him who this man is. I didn't write it for you, but he says, I have a feeling this is a man named Mr. Byans. Uh, well, Byans desires to walk with them. Christian decides to challenge him. If you will go with us, you must go against wind and tide, the which I perceive is against your opinion. You must also own religion in his rags as well as when, his, when in his silver slippers and stand by him too when bound in irons as well as he walketh the streets with applause. Buy-ins. You must not impose nor lord it over my faith. Leave me to my liberty and let me go with you. Christian, not a step further, unless you will do in what I propound as we. Then said Bayans, I shall never desert my old principles, since they are harmless and profitable. If I may not go with you, then I must do as I did before you overtook me, even go by myself until some overtake me, that will be glad of my company. So Bayan separates himself from them and just kind of walks on his own. Then some friends come along to join Mr. Bayan's. Their names are as follows, Mr. Hold the World, Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Save All. So they are buds with uh, Mr. Bayan's and they start talking together. Um, they were taught, according to Bunyan, by one Mr. Gripe Man, a schoolmaster in the town of Lovegain, which is a market town in the uh, county of Coveting in the north. This schoolmaster taught them the art of getting, of gain, either by violence, cozenage, I guess that's like sucking up to people, flattery, lying, or by putting on the guise of religion. And so these four gentlemen had attained much of the art of their master so that they could each of them have kept a school themselves. So this is their whole approach to life. Bayans characterizes Christian hopeful to his new friends. Now, this is interesting. This is basically, I think, how the Puritans were seen by the general churchgoers in England. Realize in their day, it was illegal not to go to church. I mean, consider that. They didn't have separation of church and state. So you got fined if you didn't go to church. But most of the churches were dead. They were just these Anglican churches with unconverted pastors. 
So it wasn't doing them much good, and sometimes they didn't collect the fines anyway. And so there was just a great deal of irreligion in England. But I'm just telling you what it was like. It's very different than in, in our, our world. So people are going, and so the Puritans were generally seen very poorly as being overly strict. So this is how they converse about Christian and, and uh, hopeful. Buy-ins. They are a couple of far countrymen that, after their mode, are going on pilgrimage. Money love. Alas, why do they not stay that we might have had their good company? For they and we and you, sir, I hope, are all going on pilgrimage by ends. We are so indeed. But the men before us are so rigid and they love so much their own notions and do also so lightly esteem the opinions of others that let a man be never so godly, yet if he jumps not with them in all things, they thrust him quite out of their company. Save all. Well, that is bad. But we read of some that are righteous overmuch. And such men's rigidness prevails with them to judge and condemn all but themselves. But I pray, what and how many are the things wherein you differed? So how does this uh, back and forth here reveal how zealous Christians are viewed by worldly nominal Christians? They're not really looking at, at you know, whether there's some, some reason why these so-called rigid, strict Christians are living like that. Anyone else? How are zealous Christians viewed by nominal Christians? Yeah, like we're judging them. And, and we're harsh and we, we can't get along with people, etc. Yeah. Buy-ins. Why, they, after their headstrong manner, conclude that it is duty to rush on their journey in all weathers. And I'm for waiting for wind and tide. They are for hazarding all for God at a clap. And I am for taking all advantages to secure my life and estate. They are for holding their notions, though all other men are against them. But I am for religion in what and so far as the times and my safety will bear it. Wow. They are for religion when in rags and contempt. But I am for him when he walks in his golden slippers in the sunshine and with applause. So then Byans decides to propose a case study. Byans, my brethren... We are, as you see, going all on pilgrimage, and for our better diversion from things that are bad, let me give, uh, uh, sorry, give me leave to propound unto you this question. Suppose a man, a minister, or a tradesman should have an advantage lie before him to get the good blessings of this life, yet so as that he can by no means come by them except in appearance at least, he becomes extraordinarily zealous in some points of religion that he meddled not with before. May he not use these means to attain his end and yet be a right, honest man. Now, let me just stop and tell you what I think is, was frequently the case in previous years in the Bible Belt. That it would, be an, it would be to your business and social advantage to be a member of First Baptist Church in a county seat town. You could, you could make business connections. I mean, 80% of the people in that town went to that church. And so this is not very far-fetched, that you can actually start acting like a Baptist, talk like a Baptist, kind of get in there, become a member, but your real reason is what? Money. Money. Business. Making connections. Getting advancement. Maybe getting hired or getting customers. What's that? If you're an insurance salesman, yeah, for example. There's just benefits, you know. Now, this is not the case most in, uh, overwhelmingly most in the world. 
but it, it, it is where religion has flourished and been successful and where most of the people are holding it, it's very possible at that point that the very thing that they're talking about here happens. And again, notice what the goal is, to get the good blessings of this life. That's the goal. So to have a good life, to have friends and business and security and all of that. And so that's their reason. So let's continue. Money love. I see the bottom of your question. And with these gentlemen's good leave, I will endeavor to shape you an answer. And first, to speak to your question as it concerns a minister himself. Suppose a minister, a worthy man, possessed but a very small benefice. What that means is the church you are a pastor of is a small one in a poor part of England. So what does that mean for you in terms of your lifestyle? If you're the pastor of a small church in a rural, poor part of England, what's your life going to be like? You'll be poor too. All right. Are there wealthier benefices, so to speak, wealthier parishes? There are. Okay, well, let's continue. And he has in his eye a greater, more fat and plump by far. So that's a better setup, right? Uh, he's going up the ecclesiastical ladder to a better church. By the way, that happens in Bible Belt places too. You know, you get your starter church and then, you know, you just move on up, etc. It, it occurs. All right, anyway, he has in his eye a greater, more fat and plump by far. He has also now an opportunity of getting of it. Yet so as by being more studious, by preaching more frequently and zealously, and because the temper of the people requires it by altering some of his principles. For my part, I see no reason but a man may do this, provided he has a call. I and more a great deal besides, and yet be an honest man. So in other words, he's saying, if that's what it takes to get that better church, whatever you need to do, do it. Even if you don't personally have any desire to study like that or preach like that or actually from the heart be zealous. Whatever you need to do, do it. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, I think that's totally fine. Let me give you the reasons why. Number one, his desire of a greater benefice is lawful. This cannot be contradicted since it is set before him by providence. Oh, that's interesting. In other words, anything that happens to you is the will of God. So you have an opportunity, grab it, right? So it's lawful. So then he may get it if he can, making no question for conscience sake. Secondly, besides his desire after that benefice makes him more studious and a more zealous preacher. And so makes him a better man, yea, makes him better improve his parts, which is according to the mind of God. So in other words, his reason for doing it is what? Money. But look at the good things that come. That's what he's arguing here. That, look, even though, you know, we say the reason is so that he can have a more comfortable life, still look what it makes him do. Studying more, more zealous, more religious, etc. Thirdly, now as for his complying with the temper of his people by dissenting to serve them of some of his principles, this argueth, one, that he is of the self-denying temper. In other words, look at him. He can say no to himself by giving up on his principles just so long as he can make money. That's actually a very good thing. Uh, number two, of a sweet and winning deportment. In other words, he knows how to win friends and influence people. He can get along with people and find out what they like and give it to them. Right? And number three, he is therefore more fit for the ministerial function. This is what you want. You want somebody who's able to ditch his principles whenever he needs to, and he's able to find out the temper of the people and fit in and give them exactly what they want. So he's going to be an excellent pastor. I conclude then that a minister that changes a small for a great should not for so doing be judged as covetous, 
but rather, since he has improved in his parts and industry thereby, be counted as one that pursues his call, and the opportunity put into his hands to do good. And now to the second part of the question, which concerns the tradesman you mentioned. Suppose such a one to have but a poor employee in the world, but by becoming religious, he may mend his market, perhaps get a rich wife, or more and far better customers to his shop. For my part, I see no reason but that this may be lawfully done. For why? Number one, to become religious is a virtue by whatever means soever a man becomes so. By the way, that's the key to this whole point. If you become more religious, doesn't matter your reason why. Just, it's a good thing. Now, Bunyan clearly doesn't believe that. But let's just keep going. Number two, nor is it unlawful to get a rich wife or more custom to my shop. Number three, besides, the man that gets these by becoming religious gets that which is good of them that are good by becoming good himself. So then here is a good wife and good customers and good gain and all these by becoming religious, which is good. Therefore, to become religious, to get all these is a good and profitable design. Boy, they got the whole thing worked out, don't they? Bunch of good things come. All right, so what does their reasoning about worldly compromise show you? What do you learn from their, their reasoning? What Bunyan's doing is he's taking you into the mind and heart of the way people think when they do this. Say, what do you learn from this, this discourse? We are. Now, let me zero in on that, okay? Who is that true of? Who is it true of that this person is willing to rationalize so that they may do sinful things? There you go. <laughs> Every single person except Jesus. It's very helpful for a pastor, a preacher to know that. And if uh, the Puritans did this better than anyone, which is to think of the evasions and twists and turns of the human heart to evade the text that the, that the pastor's preaching on. What will, what will your sin nature do with this truth? How will you try to avoid it and evade it? And they, they did better kind of psychologizing, I mean in a healthy way, of the way that the, the sinful, the wicked human heart tends to evade the truth of the Word of God. It's true of all of us. So, Craig, yeah. Yeah, I remember years ago when we were talking about our worship style and music and all that, and at one point it seemed reasonable for me to facetiously say, why don't we try a worship style that everyone hates? You know, let's, let's, make, let's choose music that's discordant and cacophonous and that is poorly done. And that way we know that we're not pandering to human lusts or the desires. And, and we're, you know, we're going to do that. And then extend that to ministry. I'm going to minister in such a way that everyone who knows me can't stand me. And that way I just know I'm not a people pleaser because no one's pleased. And, you know, it's like, well, clearly it's not a goal that you should go out. I want to be certain that no one is pleased with me. That's not a goal. But I think the other side, what you're saying, the other side is, yeah, but that, that would be your top priority is that people would be pleased with me. That's not good either. There has to be some healthy area here. So honestly, prosperity, material prosperity is not in itself an evil thing. We should try to avoid it at all costs. That's, a, that's a, an ascetic life, and we're not advocating that. But I, I love this because it shows just that skillful psychologizing that, that Bunyan, he just knew what was in the human heart. He knew the evasions and the twistings and turnings that we all do. So what Craig said, everybody but Jesus. Jesus was pure through and through, but all of us have that evasive side. All right, well, anyway, Christian is summoned in to answer the case study. Then said Christian, I love this, 
Even a babe in religion may answer 10,000 such questions. This one's not even hard. All right, so let's roll up our sleeves and do it. For if it be unlawful to follow Christ for loaves, I think, Craig, you just mentioned John 6, how much more abominable is it to make of him and religion a stalking horse to get and enjoy the world? Nor do we find any other than heathens, hypocrites, devils, and witches that are of this opinion. And then he lists them. Number one, heathens. For when Hamor and Shechem had a mind to the daughter and cattle of Jacob and saw that there was no way for them to come at them but by becoming circumcised, they said to their companions, If every male of us be circumcised as they are circumcised, shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Their daughter and their cattle were that which they sought to obtain. And the religion, being circumcised, was a stalking horse that they made use of to come at them. So you know that story, and so like that's our reason for becoming Jews at this point. It's not, they had no desire to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Secondly, the hypocritical Pharisees were also of this religion. They made long prayers as their pretense, but to get widows' houses was their intent. And greater damnation from God was their judgment. Just covered that just this past Sunday in Luke 20. All right, thirdly, Judas the devil was also of this religion. He was religious for the bag that he might be possessed of what was therein. But he was lost, cast away, and the very son of perdition. And fourthly, Simon the witch was of this religion too, for he would have had the Holy Ghost that he might have got money therewith. And his sentence in Peter's mouth was accordingly. So that's Acts 8. Neither will it uh, out of my mind, but that a man that takes up religion for the world will throw away religion for the world. Whatever it takes, because that's his real goal. All right, for so surely Judas, as, uh, as Judas resigned the world by becoming religious, so surely did he also sell religion as master for the same. To answer the question, therefore, affirmatively, as I perceive you have done, and to accept of as authentic such, uh, such answers, both heathenish, hypocritical, and devilish, and your reward will be according to your works." Then they stood staring upon one another, one upon another, but had not wherewith to answer Christian. Hopeful also approved of the soundness of Christian's answer, so there was great silence among them. So how does Christian's answer show the danger of covetousness to true faith? Yeah, like Judas. His whole reason for following Jesus was financial, and look what happened in the end. Well, eventually, uh, Bayans and all his companions end up falling for Demas's silver mine. I kind of cut that out because there's only so much time. But they end up falling off a cliff and piercing themselves with, you know, thereby. And we don't see them again. Now, the next section, refresh, refreshment by the river of life. I saw then as they went on their way to a pleasant river, which David the king called the river of God, but John, the river of the water of life. Now their way lay just upon the bank of the river, and here therefore a Christian and his companion walked with great delight. They drank also of the water of the river, which was pleasant, and enlivening to their weary spirits. Besides, on the banks of this river, on either side, were green trees that bore all manner of fruit, and the leaves of the trees were good for medicine. With the fruit of these trees they were also much delighted, and the leaves that they eat to prevent surfeits and other diseases that are incident to those that heat their blood by travels. On either side of the river was also a meadow curiously beautified with lilies, and it was green all the year long. And in this meadow they lay down and slept, for here they might lie down safely. And when they awoke, they gathered again of the fruit of the trees and drank again of the water of the river. 
and then lay down again to sleep. Thus they did several days and nights. Now I've noted before, I won't stop and ask the question now, but I've noted before that Bunyan has a rhythm of trials and then periods of refreshment. Again and again, there are places like the Shady Arbor or the House Beautiful uh, or the Interpreter's House, different places, and then this place as well, where Christians, where the pilgrims can be refreshed and renewed. If it were all trial, we would crumble. We'd be destroyed. If we're all refreshment, we would be destroyed in a different way. But God in his wisdom mixes times of refreshment along with the trials. And he's wise in doing that. All right, let's dig in now and look at Doubting Castle and Giant Despair. All right, we begin with Bypath Meadow. Now I beheld in my dream that they had not journeyed far, but the river and the way for a time parted, at which they were not a little sorry, yet they dared not go out of the way. Now the way from the river was rough and their feet tender by reason of their travel. So the souls of the pilgrims were much discouraged because of the way. Wherefore, still as they went on, they wished for a better way. Now a little before them, there was on the left hand of the road a meadow and a stile to go over into it. And that meadow is called Bypath Meadow. Then said Christian to his fellow, If this meadow lieth along by our wayside, let us go over into it. Then he went to the stile to see, and behold, a path lay along by the way on the other side of the fence. It is according to my wish, said Christian. Here is the easiest going. Come, good hopeful, let us go over. Hopeful. But how if this path should lead us out of the way? Christian, that's not likely, said the other. Look, doth it not go along by the wayside? So hopeful, being persuaded by his fellow, went after him over the stile. And when they were gone over and were got into the path, they found it very easy for their feet. And with all they looking before them, espied a man walking as they did. His name was Vain Confidence. So they called after him and asked him whither that way led. He said to the celestial gate, Look, said Christian, did I not tell you so? By this you may say, see that we are right. So they followed, and he went before them. So what does this passage teach us about how easy it is to step off the true path? Look at their reasonings. Look at why they left the path to begin with. What was it that was enticing about Bypath Meadow? And what do you learn from all that? Yeah, Hebrews 2.4 says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, what does the word drift mean in Hebrews 2.4? Drift. Slow-moving, subtle, almost imperceptible, not really sure then after a while, how did I get so far away? So it's very, it's very dangerous, this kind of possibility of drifting. Also, I told you when it comes to Pilgrim's Progress, there's one basic rule of the road. All right, what is it? Stay on the path. All right? <laughs> Every single time they get off, look what happens, yes. Yeah, and, and, and um, there, there are two things that convince them to go. Remember what they are? The two th things that convince them, this is, this is great. What are they? Someone else said it leads right to the celestial gate. They should have asked him what his name is in the allegory, all right? <laughs> Vain confidence, all right? We'll see what happens to him in a moment. Uh, and the other is, according to Christian's own eyes, it does go along the same way. It's just right alongside. So as far as he's concerned, why did Hopeful go? Christian persuaded him. So that's the, the responsibility that older mentor types have to those that are their disciples and that are fallen. 
All right, so it suddenly becomes dark. Uh, it gets dark, it's night. Now Christian and his fellow heard him fall. He fell into a pit. I skipped that, I just, but vain confidence falls into a deep pit. So they called to know the matter, but they, there was none to answer, only they heard a groaning. Then said, Hopeful, where are we now? Then was his fellow silent as mistrusting that he had led him out of the way. So now they start to realize they're in trouble. Vain confidence is gone. He's at the bottom of a pit and it's dark and they don't know where they are. So now it became, began to rain and thunder and lighten in a very dreadful manner and the water rose amain. Then Hopeful groaned in himself saying, Oh, that I had kept on my way. You could add, no matter what you did, <laughs> okay, I should not have listened to you. Why did I do this? All right. Christian, who could have thought that the path should have led us out of the way? Hopeful, I was afraid on it at the very first and therefore gave you that gentle caution. And I would have spoken plainer, but that you are older than I. Christian, good brother, be not offended. I am sorry I have brought thee out of the way and that I have put thee into such imminent danger. Pray, my brother, forgive me. I did not do it of evil intent. Hopeful, be comforted, my brother, for I forgive thee. And believe, too, this shall be for our good. By the way, Hopeful is really well named. We're going to see this again and again and again. So he's just a, just a hope-filled person. So even this is going to turn out for our good. I'm confident in it. Christian, I am glad that I have with me a merciful brother. But we must not stand thus. Let us try to go back again. Hopeful. But, good brother, let me go ahead of you. So he wants to lead. Christian, no, if you please, let me go first, that if there be any danger, I may be the first therein, because by my means we are both gone out of the way. No, said Hopeful, you shall not go first, for your mind being troubled may lead you out of the way again. Then for their encouragement, they heard the voice of one saying, Set thine heart toward the highway. Even the way thou, thou wentest, turn again. Jeremiah 31, 21. But by this time the waters were greatly risen, by reason of which the way of going back was very dangerous. Then I thought that it is easier going out of the way when we are in than going in when we are out. I chose to just bold that for you. That seems to be the lesson here. It's very hard to get back. Very easy to step out. Yet they had ventured to go back, but it was so dark and the flood was so high that in their going back they had like to have been drowned nine or ten times. Neither could they with all the skill they had get again to the stile that night. Wherefore, at last, lighting under a little shelter, they sat down there until the daybreak. But being weary, they fell asleep. Now there was not far from the place where they lay a castle called Doubting Castle, the owner whereof was Giant Despair. And it was in his grounds that they now were sleeping. Wherefore, he, getting up in the morning early and walking up and down in his fields, caught Christian and hopeful asleep in his grounds. Then with grim and surly voice, he bid them awake and asked them whence they were and what they did in his grounds. They told him they were pilgrims and that they had lost their way. Then said the giant, you have this night trespassed on me by trampling in and lying on my grounds and therefore you must go along with me. So they were forced to go because he was stronger than they. They also had but little to say, <clears throat> for they knew themselves in a fault. The giant, therefore, drove them before him and put them into his castle, 
into a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to the spirits of these two men. Here they lay from Wednesday morning till Saturday night without one bit of bread or drop of drink or light or any to ask how they did. They were therefore here in evil case and were far from friends and acquaintance. Now in this place, Christian had double sorrow because it was through his unadvised counsel that they were brought into this distress. Poem, the pilgrims now to gratify the flesh will seek its ease, but oh, how they afresh do thereby plunge themselves new griefs into who seek to please, please the flesh themselves undo. Uh, let's table the question on spiritual depression. I'm going to circle back to it at the end. Now, Giant Despair had a wife and her name was Diffidence. I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up. I think it means kind of unassuming, like um, kind of not self-confident, like somebody who's diffident is that way, you know, needs to be kind of encouraged um, to kind of speak up, be more confident in, in him or herself, something like that. So this is like one of the most misnamed people in the entire allegory. And I think Bunyan does it on purpose, not like he doesn't know what diffident, diffidence means. She's just a hag. All right, it's just horrible, this woman. So let's find out about her. Now, Giant Despair had a wife, and her, and her name was Diffidence. So when he was gone to bed, he told his wife what he had done, to wit, that he had taken a couple of prisoners and cast them into his dungeon for trespassing on his grounds. Then he asked her also what he had best to do further to them. So she asked him what they were, whence they came, and whither they were bound, and he told her. Then she counseled him that when he arose in the morning, he should beat them without any mercy. Hence the wife's advice. So when he arose, he getteth him a grievous crab tree cudgel. So I, I don't know how you picture this, but you know, I think this thing still has branches on it. All right, This is this like club that he gets. He goes and grabs it. And he goes down to the dungeon to them, and there first falls to raiding of them as if they were dogs, although they never gave him a word of distaste. Then he falls upon them and beats them fearfully in such sort that they were not able to help themselves or to turn them upon the floor. This done, he withdraws and leaves them there to condole their misery and to mourn under their distress. So all that day they spent the time in nothing but sighs and bitter lamentations. So what does this teach you about spiritual depression? They're in a dark dungeon. It's got gates, bars, stinks, and they just get beat up. So what do you learn? about Spiritual depression like a prison. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah, and it's going to get worse, much worse. Yeah, you're powerless. Think about the two kind of proper nouns that we're dealing with here, setting aside diffidence for a minute. You've got doubting castle and giant despair. How do those go together, doubting and despair? Would you say that depression is essentially unbelief? Spiritual depression is unbelief. There's a form of unbelief. I'm not saying that it's only unbelief, but it is that. You're not believing the promises of God. And so we'll see that. Distrustful. So that must be what we're dealing with, archaic definition. Distrustful. Anyway, she's not a good person. Um, just keep it simple. She's not a good person. 
The next night, she, talking with her husband about them further and understanding that they were yet alive, did advise him to counsel them to make away themselves. That means to commit suicide. So when morning was come, he goes to them in a surly manner as before, and perceiving them to be very sore with the stripes that he had given them the day before, he told them that since they were never like to come out of that place, their only way would be forthwith to make an end of themselves, either with knife, halter, or poison. For why, said he, should you choose life, seeing it is attended with so much bitterness? But they desired him to let them go. With that he looked ugly upon them, and rushing to them, how doubtless make an end of them himself, but that he fell into one of his fits, for he sometimes in sunshiny weather fell into fits, and lost for a time the use of his hand, wherefore he withdrew, and left them as before to consider what to do. Then did the prisoners consult between themselves whether it was best to take his counsel or no, and thus they began to discourse. Brother, said Christian, what shall we do? The life we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live thus or to die out of hand. My, cho my soul chooseth strangling rather than life, and the grave is more easy for me than this dungeon. Shall we be ruled by the giant? So how does this show how depressed people can begin to question the value of life and perhaps even to entertain suicidal thoughts? Yeah, it's always going to be this bad. There's no escape. Okay. Anyone else? Seems like there's a certain reasoning that's going on within himself, but it's corrupt. But they're thinking about the future, thinking about misery, thinking about sorrow, uh, all of these things. And so there's an allure to it, to suicide at this point. Hopeful there is there, however, to minister hope. That's what he's there for. And he says, indeed, our present condition is dreadful, and death would be far more welcome to me than thus forever to abide. But yet let us consider. The Lord of the country to which we are going hath said, Thou shalt do no murder. No, not to another man's person. Much more than are we forbidden to take his counsel to kill ourselves. Besides, he that kills another can but commit murder upon his body. But for one to kill himself is to kill both body and soul at once. And moreover, my brother, thou talkest of ease in the grave. But hast thou forgotten the hell for certain the murderers go? For no murderer has eternal life. And let us consider again that all the law is not in the hand of giant despair. Others, so far as I can understand, have been taken by him, as well as we, and yet have escaped out of his hand. Who knows? But the God that made the world may cause that giant despair may die, or that at some time or other he may forget to lock us in, or that he may in a short time have another of his fits before us and may use the, the, lose the use of his limbs. And if ever that should come to pass again for my part, I'm resolved to pluck up the heart of a man and to try my utmost to get from under his hand. I was a fool that I did not try to do it before. But however, my brother, let us be patient and endure a while. The time may come that may give us a happy release, but let us not be our own murderers. It's an interesting expression, is it? Let us not be our own murderers. With these words, hopeful at present did moderate the mind of his brother so that they continued together in the dark that day in their sad and doleful condition. So how does hopeful persuade Christian not to commit suicide? He says it's a sin. Let's not forget the Lord of the country we're going to has forbidden it. What else? 
I mean, he goes through various scenarios, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe he'll forget to lock us in, <laughs> you know? Or he might have one of those fits. I mean, he's just, that's just, it. we're going to find a way out of this. I mean, we never know what the future holds. So let's be patient. Let's first and foremost think about God and what he has commanded. But secondly, let's not give up hope. So that's how he talks. Well, towards evening, the giant goes down into the dungeon again to see if his prisoners had taken his counsel. But when he came there, he found them alive. Truly alive was all. For now, what for want of bread and water by reason of the wounds they had received, when he beat them, they could do little but breathe. But I say he found them alive, at which he fell into a grievous rage and told them that seeing that they had disobeyed his counsel, it should be worse with them than if they had never been born. At this they trembled greatly, and I think Christian fell into a swoon, but coming a little to himself again, they renewed their discourse about the giant's counsel, and whether yet they had best to take it or no. Now Christian again seemed to be for doing it, but Hopeful made his second reply as followeth. My brother, said Hopeful, rememberest thou not how valiant thou hast been heretofore? Apollyon could not crush thee, nor could all that thou didst hear or see or feel in the valley of the shadow of death. What hardship, terror, and amazement hast thou already gone through? And art thou now nothing but fear? Thou seest I am in the dungeon with thee, a far weaker man by nature than thou art. Also this giant has wounded me as well as thee, and hath also cut off the bread and water from my mouth. And with thee I mourn without the light. But let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how thou playedst the man at Vanity Fair and was neither afraid of the chain nor cage nor yet of bloody death. Wherefore, let us, at least to avoid the shame that becomes not a Christian to be found in, bear up with patience as well as we can. So how does Hopeful approach Christian this time? He does rebuke him. But what does he talk about? His past what? Successes triumphs, victories. And really what he's saying is you need to see how far God's grace has brought you. You know, the very one, like, like raise up an Ebenezer stone. God has helped us to this point. Why would he stop helping us? Look at all the many dangers, toils, and snares through which we've already come. Let's not give up here. So all of this is Bunyan basically giving you weapons to fight with if you should ever get yourself to that point where you would be um, drawn into darkness. Well, now night being come again, the giant and his wife being in bed, she asked him concerning the prisoners if they had taken his counsel, to which he replied, they are sturdy rogues. They chose rather to bear all hardship than to make away themselves. Then, said she, take them into the castle yard tomorrow and show them the bones and skulls of those that thou hast already dispatched and make them believe ere a week comes to an end, thou wilt also tear them in pieces, as thou hast done their fellows before them. So when morning was come, the giant goes to them again and takes them into the castle yard and shows them as his wife had bidden him. These, said he, were pilgrims, as you are, once, and they trespassed in my grounds, as you have done. And when I thought fit, I tore them in pieces, and so within ten days I will do you. Go, get you down into your den again, and with that he beat them all the way thither. They lay therefore all day on Saturday in a lamentable case as before. Now when night was come and when Mrs. Diffidence and her husband the giant were got into bed, they began to renew their discourse of their prisoners. And with all the old giant wondered that he could uh, neither by his blows nor his counsel bring them to an end. 
And with that, his wife replied, I fear, said she, that they live in hope that some will come to relieve them, or perhaps they have picklocks about them by the means of which they hope to escape. And sayest thou so, my dear, said the giant, I will therefore search them in the morning. Well, on Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray, and they continued in prayer till almost the break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out in passionate speech. What a fool, quoth he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom, called promise, that, I w- that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Had it all along. Well, then, said Hopeful, that's good news, brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and give it a try. I mean, if I'm hopeful, I'm like a little ticked, actually. (laughs) Now you remember that you have your key called promise. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key opened that door also. And after, he went to the iron gate, for that must be open too, but that lock went damnable hard. Yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But that gate, as it opened, made such a creaking that it waked Giant Despair, who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail, for his fits took him again, so that he could by no means go after them. Then they went on and came to the king's highway again, and so were safe because they were out of his jurisdiction. So what does this key of promise represent, and what is the significance of it being in his bosom? So let's zero in on promise. What is a promise? And how is it specifically beneficial here for Doubting Castle and Giant Despair? What is promise? That's an example of a promise. I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Promises always have to do with past, present, or future. If you think about it, they always have to do with the future. Could be a second from now, all the way up to the end of your life. A promise is a a word spoken by God concerning your future, of benefit, of grace, he will give you in the future. All right? That should be the focus when you're in despair or discouragement, the focus of your prayer life. God, you have promised that you will never leave me or forsake me. You've promised that you'll not allow any temptation beyond what I can bear, but with the temptation, make a way of escape. You start praying the promises. The promises have to do with the future. And what do promises feed? What state of soul do they feed? What do they produce? They produce, say it, hope. Hope. Because hope always has to do with the future, good things in the future. So promises produce hope. The Word of God produces hope. And so it's in his bosom because he has taken the time to memorize Scripture. All right? He's drawing up out of his heart Scriptures that are memorized and beneficial for him to get up out of despair. Now, when they were over the stile, they began to contrive with themselves what they should do at that stile to prevent those that should come after from falling into the hands of giant despair. So they consented to erect there a pillar and to engrave upon the side thereof this sentence, over this stile is the way to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair, who despiseth the king of the celestial country and seeks to destroy his holy pilgrims. Many, therefore, that followed after read what was written and escaped the danger. 
So they put up a sign. Don't do it. All right. Don't jump the fence. Stay in the road. This done, they sang as follows. Out of the way we went and then we found what was to tread upon forbidden ground. And let them that come after have a care, lest heedlessness makes them as we to fare, lest they for trespassing his prisoners are, whose castle, castles doubting and whose names despair. I think as I look at the trials that Christian went through in his entire pilgrimage, this was the worst. We're going to find that out. I mean, he just gets soundly beaten by this giant. It's very hard. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. I think we have it down in the North Tower Resource Center. And he zeroes in on a, for meditation on Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, which says three times in those partner psalms, they almost seem like we were one psalm at one point, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. And what Lloyd-Jones says, I'm not going to read it, but you can read it. The biggest problem with people who are going through spiritual depression is that they listen to themselves rather than talking to themselves. What you need to do is not listen to yourself, such as, I hate life, why do I have to get up? I don't really, you know, you just listen. It's like a radio station. What you need to do is take yourself in hand like the psalmist does. Psalmist is talking to who? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? So who's the psalmist talking to? Himself, his own soul. Why are you downcast, implying you shouldn't be? Why are you disturbed within me, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. So the psalmist is talking to himself, like enough of this depression, enough of this discouragement, get up and trust in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So what Lloyd-Jones says is you need to preach to yourself, preach really good sermons. Maybe you always had a secret desire to be a preacher, but you're afraid of the, the crowds. Public speaking isn't your thing, right? Well, you get to preach to yourself as often as you'd like. Preach sermons to yourself. Talk biblical truth to yourself. Take yourself in hand. Reason with yourself. Look at all the stuff Hopeful says. Talk about God. Talk about your own history of, of grace. All the things. Take yourself in hand and get yourself up out of Doubting Castle and from being beaten up by giant despair. Okay, it's overtime as it always is on Wednesday. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.